Amen. Amen. Well, let me just have you stay standing for the reading of God's word as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 10 today. If you have your Bibles, why don't you go there and uh, how many are smart enough to put a little bookmark in there now? Because you're kind of seeing how much we're covering every week, right? So you should be in chapter 10 and that's what those little ribbons are, guys. You don't have to cut those out there, all right? Just use it as a bookmark and uh, keep your place with us so we can get into God's word together. This is 2 Samuel chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their lord, do you think... Because David has sent comforters to you that he's honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and spy it out and to overthrow it? So Anun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. When it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Makkah with 1,000 men and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage. And let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. And so Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobak, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen, and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. This is the word of the Lord for this morning. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. I'm one of the new pastors here, and it's a joy to be with you. Maybe I should say it like this. I'm one of the renewed pastors here after some time off, and uh, let me just encourage you to get into God's word while I give you a little update and hear from you what's been going on. Go ahead and go to 2 Samuel chapter 10. And uh, for the last month or so, I've had the privilege of just spending time with my family. And so I can say confidently that my kids' cups are full and my wife's cup is full. And we've had some great time visiting family and friends and um, even some different things. I got to uh, visit some other churches while I was gone. And it gave me a renewed compassion for people that show up at our church for the first time. There was just a few times that I went, like one time I went and the church was all hymn books and they were renting an SDA church, Seventh-day Adventist church. The memo was apparently you're supposed to either have a hymn book already or have picked one up, had no idea. Grab the Seventh-day Adventist hymnal, turns out the Seventh-day Adventist hymnal is not the same as an OPC hymnal, 
Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And so I found myself having no idea what anyone was singing, and there were no lyrics on the screen, and I walked into no one greeting me when I walked in, and so I just, my heart for you is, oh my goodness, if we do that to you, come and just have a word. <laughs> I want to meet you, because it's a big enough deal as it is to walk into a huge group of people and sit down, and my hope is that you would feel comfortable here so that the word of God would then make you gladly uncomfortable as you come face to face with Jesus. That's what we want. I'm totally glad for the discomfort of God's word. I don't want it to be because it's uncomfortable to get into the people aren't friendly and the I don't know what we're doing and all that. Just anyway, compassion, so much compassion. And I've missed some things, apparently. What have I missed? There's been something that's going on. I don't know if you've heard, seen this already, and if you know, you know, but um, a very gifted person in our church made this sticker and was passing this around in the beginning of um, <laughs> July. <laughs> which could, it <laughs> and it took no time. She's truly gifted. And I come back, and everybody's water bottle has this sticker, and I'm looking at it going, what's going on here? By the way, you'll never see that again, okay? If you know, you know. And we took the 11, not the 9, because I was working it out at the 9. We all knew it didn't, I wasn't anticipating doing it at the 9. And so by the 11, I dialed it back in. That's what's online. That's what you're going to see. But if you know, you know. And this is what happened to me when I came back for a week. Uh, the 6-4 interns preached. That's cool. We're a big church on training people up, and we see this. One of your roles as a church member is not just to come and take in the word of God. One of your roles as a church member is to being a congregational guinea pig for those who are learning how to preach. Right? And you have to think of this as, wait a minute, our hearts, what's our church's mission? To glorify God by making disciples. Guess how disciples are made? By baptizing and by teaching. Guess how that happens? By planning churches that know they're supposed to baptize and teach. We're trying to raise up pastors, and you guys graciously sitting under the word as they learn to preach, and you encouraging them and coming alongside them as I try to train them by God's grace to get them ready. Together, we are a force for the mission of the church. Isn't that awesome? So rather than it being a church where we're like, oh, we want the only the best speakers. We hope Scott's the worst speaker that we ever have to listen to. No, 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 no. This isn't a take-in of a performance. This is the prolonging and the furtherance of the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That because you guys are humble enough to say, hey, wherever the word of God is preached, no matter how sharpened the servant, my soul will be blessed. And as such, we can be a people and we will raise up an army before God's done with us, amen? We will raise up an army. All right, that's it. Title of the message this morning. Rejecting the king's kindness. Rejecting the king's kindness. Don't you sleep on this chapter. Okay? For a couple reasons. Number one. It has one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible in this chapter. Do not sleep on this chapter. This is a verse I lived off of planting this church. It's verse 12. You, you know that, right? Because there are so many weird verses that don't really have the <laughs> skip in your step that verse 12 has. One of the best verses in all of the Bible right here. Awesome, awesome, awesome. But here's another reason. Don't sleep on it just because you know what's coming next chapter. What's coming next chapter? Do we know? Do we know? Yeah, of course. It's like, no one knew anything about 2 Samuel before we started, except for David and Bathsheba. That's all anyone knew, right? We all know it's coming, and so when you're in your Bible reading, it's like, uh, 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 ooh, ooh, juicy deets. <laughs> no, no. Why? Because our mentality, when we get into God's word, just on a base level is what? All scripture is God-breathed and all of it. Do you believe that? 
for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Do you believe that? So then the scripture is written for us every single word, and this was preserved by the Holy Spirit-inspired work through the author to give us something we need. And here's the connection, okay? This is not just historical background to get us into chapters 11 and 12 where all the juicy deets get in. This is coming on the back end of chapter 9. What was chapter 9 about? Pastor Chris did a fantastic job preaching about the king's kindness. The king's, the word in the Hebrew is hesed. The king's hesed. And it was extended to Saul's family, in particular, right? Just say it. I'm just kidding. Mephibosheth. And it was extended within Israel, and when David's hesed was extended to the family within Israel, it was accepted. These last two weeks, 9 and 10, kind of have a little bit of a Romans 1.16 vibe. You know the verse about, for I know the power of, the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then to the, that's exactly what's happening in 9 and 10. The king's hesed love is extended to the Jew first and received by Mephibosheth. And then in chapter 10, the king's hesed love used, a different word is used. In chapter 9, 1, 9, 3, and 9, 7, I believe, the word is kindness. In chapter 10, you'll see the word loyalty. We're going to talk about the word hesed even more today. But whereas in 9, Hesed love is extended and received, in chapter 10, Hesed love is now extended to the nations, and it's rejected. And so more than just the historical background, to get us into chapters 11 and 12, it's a picture of the king's Hesed love. That loyal love extended to Gentiles is rejected, and here's what it's doing. It's got a little bit of Psalm chapter 2 in this. And what's happening is it's a foreshadowing of the feudal, because it's feudal, foolishness of the rejection of the Davidic king Jesus by the nations. So let me give you the big idea for this morning. Those who reject the kindness of King Jesus will be as successful as the nations are here rejecting King David. Okay? You, if you reject Jesus, will be as successful in that rejection. In other words, it will go as well for you in rejecting Jesus as it does for the nations in this passage. So that's something big in front of each one of us, right? What stands between each one of us, first of all, guaranteed you're going to die. And when you die, the Bible says you're going to stand before God and give an account. And the only worthy answer to where you will spend eternity has everything to do with what you do with Jesus. If you reject Jesus, don't think that because your life may be okay on earth that it will be good for eternity. Look at the nations and see what takes place in this text as they reject King David, which is but a mere picture and a microcosmic level of the macrocosmic reality of the Davidic King Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes and is, according to Psalm 2, rejected by the nations. So who is this a message for? Let me give you a couple categories. Number one, this message is for unbelievers, okay? This message is for unbelievers. And my plea with you would be that you would heed the warnings in this text, and be like the Syrians, interestingly enough, who subject themselves to the Davidic king as their Lord. Translation for today, be like the Syrians and subject your life to Jesus. Confess with your mouth and believe that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And also, this is a message for the Christian each one of us are his messengers. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are called his ambassadors who are meant to take the gospel, right? And preach, be reconciled to God, to everyone we can come in contact with. This is a message to you that the field seems like it's getting harder, doesn't it? You've done some evangelism lately? It is rough out there, and the encouragement to you is to be courageous, 
and to understand that what you're facing is nothing new. In fact, if we are to see a little bit of Psalm 2 happening in 2 Samuel chapter 10, then I take courage and encouragement from the apostles who when they were mistreated and brought into the authorities, they actually quoted Psalm 2 in Acts chapter 4 as a way to understand, oh, this is why this persecution is coming, because God said it was coming, because the nations, they plot in vain, and they arrange themselves against the Lord and his anointed. Oh yeah, this is why I'm experiencing this backlash for bringing Jesus to people. This is my understanding. This is how I'm supposed to make sense of this rather than wallowing in the sorrow of someone not receiving Jesus from our proclamation. And so I think in here we have something to be courageous for, for Christ and for his church. And then may God do what seems good to him. Amen? Amen. Okay, so from that lens, well, here's how we're going to look at it. Spurning his messengers is what happens at the beginning. Standing in his courage is what takes place as the battle rages, and then subduing his enemies is how it ends. And we're going to have this connection. Yes, it's going on with King David, but it's picturing something greater in King Jesus and his followers, his messengers of whom we are. So let's look at this. Number one, spurning his messengers. It says, after this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun reigned his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as the father dealt loyally with me. If you want to highlight that word or underline that word loyally, that word loyally is used twice, and it's the same word in 9193 and 97 that's translated kindness there. It's that word hesed. This is a big time word. The author wants us to know that David is cast as the Hesed king. By the way, what a huge fall 9 and 10 are in comparison to 11 and 12. We need someone greater than David to save us from our sins. David's kind of at his height, his peak, his, I'm doing great. And then from 10 to 11 is a big, big fall. But he is cast as the Hesed extending king, which is a big time Old Testament word. I want to tell you about it. It's the word used to describe how profoundly God loves his people. And it is a fantastic word. In fact, translators into the English struggle to capture it because it has a sense of double nuanced meaning of which there is no English equivalent. It's so rich with meaning. It like wants to birth many children that we can't get our English language around. That's my take on it. And so sometimes you'll have it translated as here, it's loyal to catch that part of it or it's constancy or it's steadfastness. And then you'll have other times where it's translated kindness as in chapter nine. Or sometimes you'll have it translated in a double word like steadfast love or loving kindness. In God's own self-revelation of himself in Exodus 34, it says that he is slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. That steadfastness is a love that never ceases, according to Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It's part of God's love. Here's what's so great about God's love. It's so rich and it's so lasting. If you're in it, you can't get out of it. He loves you and his love is too strong. It's the reason God made the moon and the stars and the sun. It's the reason he provides sustenance to all of his creation. It's the reason why he delivers his people from slavery. It's because of his hesed love. You can read all about it in Psalm 136. All of it is that repeating line for his hesed love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. And ultimately, Jesus Christ went to the cross because of hesed. That at the cross of Jesus Christ, the fullness of God's hesed was seen. Where Jesus, who truly was the true hasid, the one who dealt loyally and lovingly with his God and was loyal and loving with his neighbor, was condemned in our place for our sin. He was treated as the covenant breaker when we were the covenant breakers. He was offered up as a substitutionary sacrifice in our place for our sins so that in him, you and I, who are, have been unfaithful and have not been Hasid-type people, could enjoy the righteousness of God in him through faith in Jesus. That this word is profound. 
Now, we're talking about it in a human relationship, but it needs the depth to understand just what word is David using because David's now using it in a, obviously in a human relationship kind of way, right? His has said love to somebody else, but here's the key, and it's true of the Christian faith. You're not gonna be able to extend God's love if you don't know how he loved you first, okay? So if you're like, man, I'm struggling to get God's love out. I get grumpiness out. That's what I get out. I do a lot of grumpiness. Like frustration is my thing. I don't know what it is. It's just people annoy me. And I know you guys don't feel that, but hypothetically, I wouldn't encourage you to be like, hey, let's check out your love for people. I would say, hey, let's check out your love for God because wherever your love for God is failing is the reason why your love for people isn't where it should be. David was dialed in in his love for God and it comes out of him. You can only love people in a hesed way when, you are minute, when you're communing with the God who extends hesed love to you. So David does that actually what David does, which is interesting, is he sends his messengers with his hesed. Does that sound like something that we could maybe relate to today? That maybe just possibly the Davidic king Jesus sends his messengers to extend his hesed love about the cross where Jesus bled and died for the sins of all who would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, which is really one and the same act, it's coming to Jesus. Because to come to Jesus from where you've been is to turn <laughs> and to come after him. And so we see this and David's messengers go and what happens? Well, that hesed love is rejected, isn't it? And I want you to see the way this breaks down because this breaks down in unbelieving relationships and they pile up together. But this kind of breakdown can also happen wherever the flesh is found. And just so you know, the flesh is still found in every one of us. God help us not fall into these same tracks or traps. It's clear. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their Lord. Number one thing I want you to see is there was some sort of a peer pressureism in this. He's got his counsel and it's bad counsel. Who you surround yourself with right? Matters. Proverbs 13, 20 says this, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. You put fools around you, you're going to get to foolish answers. If you have a friend who's been trying to talk to you about Jesus and you go back to your other friends who think God's stuff is stupid and they reinforce that, you are in a companion of fools and you will suffer the harm of that. Does that make sense? He's got a bunch of people around him who are like, Super, two things, skeptical and cynical. Something that dwells naturally in the unrestrained flesh of an unbeliever, but if we're not careful, can dwell in us as well. There's a skepticism here, and there's a cynicism here, and both are dangerous to the soul, and you need to be watching out for it. And this isn't just for the unbelieving friend. This may be for you as well. Maybe you're in a scenario where you have a team-up thing. You've got several people, and you're trying to push or influence the person above you to do what you want them to do, and you influence them by skepticism and cynicism. I want you to see this. He says, do you think David, or do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? There's the skepticism. Do you hear it? You don't actually think that, do you? Like, surely you can't be that dense. I mean, I don't want to say it, but you're not that dumb, are you? Like, you're not faked out by the fact that David's messengers are here trying to bring you condolences, that they're actually genuine about that in any way, shape, or form. That is skepticism at its finest. Not even willing to take in or receive anything from someone else's genuine, you're immediately inclined to doubt or question, and what happens is it appeals to the intellectual pride in the person who's now being heaped on by multiple people going, you're, you're not that dumb, are you? What's that person going to be? He's got two answers. Either he holds to his ground and goes, no, I believe in the genuine integrity of David to send his messengers with the right heart, or his intellectual pride raises up and goes, I'm not that dumb. No, I'm with you guys. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I saw that the whole time. That, this is stupid. And that's, that ends up being what happens. But it's not just that. It's also cynicism. He says, has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and spy it out and to overthrow it? This is a problem. When you become cynical, 
you have this deep distrust for motives. But even more, when you become cynical, you start to act like you know other people's motives. Let me just be really, really clear. Part of the issue in judging the heart, you know, the whole Christian don't judge thing, it's don't judge the heart. You don't know the heart. That's part of the don't judge piece. You don't know the heart. You don't know the motives. The minute you in your pride believe you know somebody's motives, this is what they're trying to do. I know it. They're trying to search it out and spy it out and overtake it. The irony is David comes extending said love, but by the time we get to chapter 12 and the whole account finishes, he does end up overthrowing the city. But because they had rejected the Hesed love of God. And so we have this cynicism that plays out. We have this believing of motives, assessing motives. Here, here's, I know what they are. I know what you're thinking. Don't be that person, Christian. Don't be that person that believes you know the, you don't know someone else's motives in their heart. But even that, it's believing the worst about somebody. It's not believing the best. Love believes the best. This is believing the worst. And so he's got all these people coming together and um, all of his counsel. You're not that dumb, are you? Here's what he's really doing. I'll tell you this right now. We got to deal with this. And so he does. And what he ends up coming out with is the same view of his counsel, that they are fake mourning. They're not real mourners. And as a result, they they demanscape these guys. It's kind of what they do. Like from our vantage point, the 2022 translation, they demanscape these guys. But in the language of old, they would be basically um, exposing the fakeness of their mourning ritual by trimming their beard off. In fact, I think we have a picture of that. Here's what they did. They, they basically got a couple bad tailors and a couple bad barbers and put them together and shaved all of David's dudes and they look like that. Now, I don't have a picture of the second one, But I do weirdly have memories from initiation at soccer at UCLA. We can't go there. That is not appropriate for today. But man, reading this sounded similar to some things that we may or may not have had to endure in college. But nonetheless, this was a problem. Now we, if you get half your beard shaven, somebody was like, you should have you grown your beard out in July and then shaved it on stage for us. I'm like, I don't think we need that long of an illustration. You get it, right? You get it. And, and, and just, you know, when you cut your clothes off at the hips, we get it, right? Okay, so we see it and we go, oh, they must have been embarrassed, which is what we would anticipate. That's like a hazing trick 101. You go through, you get stuff is exposed, and you have to run to safety through a huge group of people, right? It's, it's shameful. But to them, it's worse. To them, this was assaulting the very identity that, uh, of them as Israelites, you have a Leviticus 19 talking about you, you were really careful with the beard. You're not even supposed to trim the fringes of your beard. You'd be very careful with that. And they would have these um, tassels that would hang off their robes that would stand for the significance of the Torah or the law of God. And interestingly, when they come and get their robes cut off, they cut them off at the level of the tassels as an assault against the word of God, the law of God, the Torah that the Israelites held so closely to. So this wasn't just mere embarrassment and shame. It was shame, but it was so deep, so much more deep than that. That this was an assault at their very identity, at their country, at their people. This is the stuff. Funnily enough, you're like, oh, they just got a bad shave and a bad, you know, tailor action. No, 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 no. This was stuff people would go to war for. This is the kind of level of, and then there's historical examples of this level of, of assault against the people's cultural components is enough to go to war for. And that's what we see take place. And I see this combination, right, where they've got this going on. We are in a similar vein sent out by the Davidic King Jesus with the Hesed love of God and sometimes get embarrassed or persecuted when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do we not? And you run back, and here's one of the reasons, like, you go and you, it, it's all the different excuses. Oh, I don't know what to say. They stumped me here. Uh, I feel like they'll get mad at me. They make fun of me when I do it. It's not even worth trying. All those kind of things. And I, and I just want to encourage you, listen, like, they, there may be times because the nations aren't neutral towards Jesus. Just so you know, there is no neutrality to Jesus. You're either for Jesus or you are against Jesus. There's no neutrality in here. And so when you're going to go, just like the apostles, we expect this type of 
potential persecution, whatever you would want to call it. But what's so interesting is the way David handles this in verse 5. We see the heart of God here. Where it says, when it was told David, he sent to meet these men. For the men were greatly ashamed, and the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. Here's why this is important. When you boldly go out to proclaim the love of God to people far from God, and you receive what is often the case is their rejection, and maybe some more, depending on the circumstance or how it goes down, or maybe family dynamics that in you sharing severs the relationship altogether, there is a God in heaven seated at the right hand who cares for you who tends to his sheep, who is tender towards his servants. And it is a great picture for us in David that he meets his men not only to care for them, but to cover their shame and deal with their guilt and their hurt that they had experienced in this moment. This has the king's attention. And I know what else has the king's attention. Every attempt that we try to, by faith, go out and extend the gospel of God's love to the world that gets rejected, it has our attention. Every time that's hurt, every time that's caused rift in relationship, every time it's been difficult to do so, and you've taken on some of the brunt of that, the Lord has seen it, and it has his attention. And it's almost like David's basically saying, you sit tight, you keep being courageous, and soon I will avenge them. You stay at Jericho till your beards grow back. In some ways, this is no different than the message of Matthew 10, except that was to the Israelites and this is to the Gentiles, but aren't we sent as sheep in the midst of wolves? Doesn't it say you're supposed to go, and if they receive you, great, bring that peace, but if they don't, shake off the dust from your feet and move on? And didn't Jesus say that the ones who reject you will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those who reject the gospel? You have the king's attention and you have his care for you. But then he, he moves on. Standing in his courage. Standing in his courage. The Ammonites knew that by doing the beard thing, you can go to the second point, by doing the beard thing, which now we, it's clear, isn't it? And doing the cut-off robe thing to mock their mourning of Hanun's dad, Nahash, they know that them be fighting words how it's gone down. So in the great words of the King James, they stinketh in the nostrils of David. Verse 6. And what is so interesting about this, and this is the sad thing about unbelievers, isn't this like... And if you're an unbeliever in this room, you're so welcome here. We're glad to have you here. We want you to know Jesus. But here's the problem with the unbelieving heart. If there's initial, like, strong resistance to Jesus in the unbelieving heart, the sad thing about it is you would just think it's so easy to be like, whoa, 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 I came out way too strong. No, I'm open to this. Let's talk some more. Maybe this thing is right or whatever or real or Jesus is. But instead, so often, the hardness of our hearts, because we're born in sin, because we have a sin nature, we end up doubling down. We end up making it harder on ourselves. We let our sin play out. So instead of being like, wow, we went way over the top on that. We assess motives. We were cutting off dudes' beards. We were basically ready to start a war. Like, I think you'd sense would be like, maybe we shouldn't. David's been quite successful. We read chapter 8, right? He's been quite successful, but no, here's something about the unbelieving pagan heart that in their pomp and in their pride, they hire other pagan nations and do what? Do what Psalm 2, verse 2 says they'll do. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord together and against his anointed. Like there's nothing new here. This happened with Jesus in Matthew 22. When the Sadducees were silenced by Jesus, what did the Pharisees do? They started to gather together against Jesus. They start to form a mob. 
What happens in Revelation 11, listen, or excuse me, 19, it says the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. This is what the sinner does. This is what the unbeliever does. This is what the unbelieving nations do. They aren't neutral, as was said, and sinners will defy the Lord's anointed. And it brought me back. I was just thinking about my dad, you know, and if you know my story of my dad, um, just working on him for a long time with the gospel, right? And to the, the one who's been given eyes to see spiritually the truth of the gospel, there's something in you that just goes, just how easy would it be to confess? How easy would it be to just say, I have trampled on every good gift you've ever given me. And instead of giving you any of the glory or any of the honor, I've taken it all for myself and assumed it was all me. How easy would it be to throw yourself at the mercy of God because our God's so forgiving, he would forgive that person. If you were now, despite everything you were, you've ever done in your life, if you were to throw yourself at the mercy of God and seek his forgiveness, here's the crazy thing about the Christian God, he would extend it to you. He is not withholding it from you. I don't care what you've done. That's how substantial the cross is. And it seems so easy. And listen, this is how hard the sinner's heart is. This is how broken the sinner's heart is. And so instead of that, here's what goes down instead. Psalm 7, 12 says, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. God has forces to send against those that defy his anointed, which will convince all and many when it is too late that no one has ever hardened his heart against God and prospered. Not one single person has ever hardened their heart against God and prospered. And so what happens? Well, they had become a stinketh of a stench to David and they had sent and hired the Syrians and they got all these soldiers, right? thousand men here, 12,000 here. David knows about it. He sends Joab. We see it all playing out in verses six to eight, but then verse nine says that when Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, so they have this kind of, I, I don't know much about military strategy, but I know what a pincer move is, and that's when the army splits over like this and comes from the front and the back, and they realize that's what the Ammonites with the Syrians are going to do, and so Joab prepares for that, he says, I got the Syrians, you take the Ammonites, bro, and we'll go to town. If they get after you and start to have a little victory, I'll help. And if vice versa, they get after me, they start to have a little victory, come and help a brother out. Right? That's what's been going on. We don't get a lot of like saving Private Ryan kind of gory details in here. We don't get a lot about the war. It really sets us up to focus on verses 11 and specifically 12. The, the only theological note in the entire passage is here in verse 12. The only real presence where we hear of Yahweh is here in verse 12. And what's interesting is the source of, let me just say, can I just say, if verse 12 is not one of your mottos for life, make it one of your mottos today. Okay? You're like, I already have a motto. Happy wife, happy life. Well, add it on, all right? Just add it, add it to that and other things. And, and maybe start with the Bible ones, you know? And just see this as your motto. Not that a happy wife doesn't help a happy life, to, to be sure. The source of this is so interesting. Joab is this, he, he, he's an out for himself, bloodthirsty kind of guy, right? Do you remember back in chapter three? You probably don't. He killed Abner. He was like, hey, buddy, come here. Whack, got him. He's kind of ready to do whatever he needs to do to stay on top. Comes out with this amazing statement. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what seems good to him. <laughs> it's kind of weird taking it from Joab. You're like, bro, your life, train wreck. And yet I realized as I was thinking through this, what's funny is even in listening to me or anyone else, it's a good reminder that God only has crooked sticks from which to draw straight truths through. That's all you got. You, you've got sinners until you meet Jesus 
that the only thing that makes them legitimate or not, it's not like, oh, Scott's so great because of blah, 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 or Chris or whoever is up here. It, we're only great to the degree that we preach the truth of God's word because that's the only thing that's going to help your souls. We could entertain you up here. We could give you some wisdom, which is growing now. I know I look young, but just imagine nine years ago when this started. So we could go that route. We don't go that route because the only thing that matters is the straight truth. So just remember when you hear straight truth, even from a sinner like Joab, that's like the only way you're going to hear it through human preachers who all happen to be crooked sticks that have straight truths to preach to people. And so he says this, be of good courage and may the Lord do what seems good to him. What's your job? Your job is courage, church. That's your job. What's, the, what's that in for me today? Courage. Be of good courage. Be courageous. What's God's job? Doing what's good in his sight. Your job, be courageous in your trust of God to do what seems good to him. How does this play out? It plays out in a whole bunch of different ways, but it specifically plays out in the realms where we don't have a specific promise from God about something. For example, right here, Joab didn't know what the outcome was going to do, what the Lord would do, but he did know that the Lord was, would do what's good. I think about the general, like, let's use my dad's scenario again, right? We know that the Lord has promised to save sinners, amen? Because the whole group is filled with them. Right? That's us. And yet what we don't know is that God promised to specifically save the one you're praying for. We don't know that. It doesn't stop us, though, from what? Get out there. Say something. Don't woo them just with your life. Let your life back up your proclamation. Say something. Right? That's huge as witnesses. The same thing. God promises that he'll take care of us with sustenance, but that doesn't mean stakes every night. And so what do we do? It's like, well, I don't know. We trust him for what we need, and may the Lord do what seems best to him. Be courageous and take care of your family. Right? You, you, you can put it in different contexts. How about me for the church plant? We know Jesus said he'll plant his church, but he never says in there, oh, and he's going to use you. And then even if it does get planted, he, I have, what kind of church does he promise? People I like in the church, people I don't like in the church? Small church, big church? Church is strong in this and not in that? How, that's the Lord's to do. So what do we do in those scenarios? Here's what you do. Go out in faith. Trust the Lord will do what seems good to him. Do you believe that? That takes on a whole different significance for us when we talk about what's good for his followers, we know what's good. God causes all things to work together for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And then before we let that be this abstract thought, he tells us that what our good is, is to be conformed ever increasingly into the image of Jesus, who's the firstborn deserving of all the glory. And so we know he's after in our lives, the glory of Jesus through your conforming into his image. So what Jesus lays down, so Joab's going into battle, he's going to be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And he's going to trust that the Lord's going to do what seems good to him. Here's the question at the end of the day. It's one of the questions I ask the church planners, even as they are 6'4 guys, even as they're considering church planning and pastoring and other things. It's this, it's to say, if the only thing that came out of this training was that you were more sanctified and like Jesus, but you tanked in any ministry aspiration, would that be enough for you? If it is, you're ready to be in ministry. And I would just say the same thing for you. If and whatever you need to pursue by trusting in the Lord in a courageous way, would you be okay with whatever the Lord determines is good for you? And of course, we understand that as being conforming you to the image of Jesus. So what if it's rougher than you expected? Are you okay in trusting yourself to him and still taking a step of faith, knowing that whatever he's going to do will only ultimately ever be caused to work together for your good? That's where we have to live. That is where we have to rest. I don't know what the outcome of X will be. I don't know if my son or daughter who has strayed from the Lord will get saved. I don't know that. But church, let's be courageous. And let's see what God will do. He will do what seems good to him. Right? So we step out and do it. Walk in it. Trust him for his goodness because surely his goodness and mercy will follow you. Come on.
And in this case, it, it works out where all you see in verses 13 and 14 is that they fled, they fled, they fled, they fled. They drew near and they fled before him. Verse 14. When the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they're like, peace. I'm out too. And then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. And then we see the third dynamic here, which is the subduing of his enemies. The third dynamic is the subduing of his enemies. God, free us from our flesh and its desire to double down when we're stuck in a corner of our own rebellion and defiance and it hasn't gone well. It's, it's so needed. They, they end up fleeing, but when the Syrians, verse 15, saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they, they had a problem with that. And they gathered themselves together and had an easier sent and brought out the Syrians from before the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobak. So they went all the way beyond the Euphrates, pulled a whole bunch of Syrians in, got this big-time commander to be a part. This is a huge battle, by the way. This, the, 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 we're getting this in like a sound bite, and this is like an, a massive undertaking. And says, when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. And the Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. So they do the fighting words thing, shave the beards, trim them out. You don't actually think they're here to, condole, to, to give you consolation because your dad condolences, all that stuff. They double down. They go to battle. They lose the battle. And what do they do? They go get more nations the foolishness and the futility of the unbelieving heart. The nations go gather more nations. Fine. We lost. I don't like losing. That's this innate pride that is woven into the sinner's heart. And what's funny is the Syrians, remember, it wasn't even their fight to begin with. And they're like, we can't lose. Grab the armies. We're going back. It wasn't your battle. I know it wasn't. Wait, what? You know, it's like, this is what's going on. And they're bringing this like big time team in there. And, and what we find that's so interesting is there's a shift here because guess who finds himself on the battlefield? King David. Where isn't King David in chapter 11? We'll talk about that distinction next week. He goes to battle. He leads Israel into battle against the nations and the forces of evil. Remember what happens. David comes to them via messengers, extending his love. They reject it. And it, eventually it leads to the overthrow of the city they were skeptical about and cynical about. You can read about it in chapter 12, 30, and 31. You see that David's actually crowned king. So here it is. Here's this picture of the Davidic king being crowned over and against the nation's resistance. <laughs> But the picture here that we see is, and this is such a warning for each one of us that doesn't know Jesus, is that you can try all you want to resist and reject the influence of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life, but the Davidic king will rule. And I'll, I'll put it like this. The Davidic king Jesus is ruling. He is the ruler of the nations. The nations are his. You go, I don't see that. Oh, he, he died and rose, and you can't find him in a tomb because he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. So you can try all you want, but Jesus is ruling, and Jesus is reigning on the throne. Verse 18, and the Syrians fled before Israel. And David, I love it, David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobak, the commander of the army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, listen to this, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Finally, something positive takes place. That there is this hope that we hold out even for today, even for the most lost people in our lives. We hold out the hope that is also there in Psalm chapter 2 when it says that they became wise. And they realized, as they did here, that you can bow to King Jesus or you will bow to King Jesus. 
you have two options. Every single person, regardless of what you believe, pantheism, panentheism, atheism, agnosticism, Mormon, Roman Catholic, Muslim, all of it, you're all going to stand before Jesus. Every single person. You're going to stand before the Lord and give an account, and you can bow or you will bow. Today is the day to bow to King Jesus and to receive him, to do what the Syrians did and make peace with Israel. How do you make peace? By believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that his death was in your place for your sin. He made a way in his love to rescue you. You couldn't get up to God. God sent Jesus to come down for you. He died in your place so that your sin could be forgiven. He rose for, from the dead, conquering Satan's sin, death, wrath, hell. All your greatest enemies are there. Jesus conquered them in his own resurrection so that whoever believes in him by faith will be credited with the righteousness of God that was possessed by Jesus. Such that when God sees us, he treats us as if we had lived the life of Jesus and you did nothing. You brought the sin that required Jesus to come to earth in the first place. He brought everything else. And by faith in Jesus alone, you can come into right relationship with him. You can be reconciled to God. I love the words of Alistair Begg here. He said, there's no way the Syrians could escape from him unless they found their escape in him. That's the word. There is no way that you will find your escape from Jesus unless you find your escape in Jesus. And so this is a, this is an invitation to follow the Syrians, to lay down arms of rebellion and to run to King Jesus for refuge. Resistance is futile. The nations are his. He reigns and he rules. And so come while you can before it is said, as it is in the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 18, that the nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged for rewarding your servants and those who fear your name and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. You can bow or you will bow. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time and thank you for your truth that it is a timeless truth that we are connected to because of the spirit that's dwelling inside of us and that the word is the revealer of the word of God, Jesus. Father, I pray that you would do the work that only you can do in human hearts. What a, what a blessing to think that my best falls well short of who you are. So there is no pressure. There's just hope and anticipation. And what I know, God, is you are more eager to fulfill your promises than I am to see them fulfilled. I believe that with all my heart. And I believe you will continue to work in the hearts and lives of those here. Some to come to Jesus Christ by a simple faith, trusting in him unto salvation. And others to be courageous, not in their own strength, but in the strength you supply by your word, through your spirit, to step out and trust you. That as they go out in faith, you will do what seems good to you. And that is enough for us to be courageous. We love you, Lord. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.